everyone so welcome to episode 47 of tetari with wallet hopefully you are enjoying your cup of tetari like i am and today i am delighted to have a uh, professor chong chayan or yan chong from nus he's from the department of political science at nus and that's where i met him i was never formally in his classes but i used to attend uh, some of his classes but whenever we met and i i literally mean this almost every time we met we would spend at least half an hour along the walkway discussing politics usually local but sometimes american politics as well <coughs> and until now we are still in touch and he is of course one of the editors of academia sg so i'm delighted to have him on we'll be talking about that we'll be talking about the death penalty also because that's a hot topic but He is first and foremost a China specialist, so I want I wanted to pick his brain on what's going on in China and how that pertains to us in Singapore. Hello, Prof. Hello, Chow, hello. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So, uh, thank you for coming on. I am happy to see you. <laughs> I somehow feel I've been uh, bluffed into this one. <laughs> It's okay. It's okay. Yeah. So this is quite a step I, down from from NPR. You you appeared on what, NPR this morning. Oh, what what are you talking about? M- NPR is a warm up to this. I'm. It's only because of NPR that I get a gig with you. I mean, come on. Was it this morning the uh, the uh, session? The the um, broadcast was this morning U.S. time, uh, and the. Uh, The recording was what was it? The recording was um, Monday. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. So thank you, thank you for agreeing to be on this humble show after NPR. <laughs> so. Lola, come on. Uh, NPR looks up to you. You see, I have to do NPR first, and then I then I come up to, to you, right? <laughs> I wish. I wish. But let Let's start with your specialty, right? China. What's What's going on? First of all, China itself, like Hu Jintao, and uh, what What was all of that about? And So Xi Jinping stack stack the party with his allies is so he's obviously in a much stronger position. But is that in reaction to a weakening of his authority because of whatever has happened with zero COVID and all of that? Can you explain a little? I don't know, Wallet. I was waiting for you to tell me. <laughs> no, no, I'm serious. So uh, the the reading the reading is generally that Xi Jinping has consolidated his position. But one of the realities of Uh, China today is that it's a lot more closed off than before. It, uh, contact is uh, a lot less. I mean, it's not just with COVID, but it's general uh, development of the system. So if you look at the people who people that a lot of um, observers, journalists were talking about, who might get into the uh, Politburo Standing Committee, right? Many people are off. I was off, but that's because there isn't the same sort of contact as uh, there was the case before, right? So what that tells us is. There's a lot more uncertainty. There's a lot more room for error. There's a lot more room for miscalculation. Okay, so Xi Jinping is uh, not as strong as he used to be with society. No, I, I mean, popular I support. Think, no, I I think he is stronger than ever. Popular support, all that, it's not clear. No one, no one knows for certain. Uh, certainly, he does have a level of popular support. How much of that is organic? How much of that is manufactured? Right. No one, ha- no one can really tell. But uh, what we do know is that he has a stronger hold of the party and the state uh, mechanism than ever. So he has a stronger ability to control and manipulate the instruments of state. Okay, how does that relate to us uh, in Singapore, especially after his speech, right, talking about everybody belongs to China, as in every Chinese overseas. Yeah. Well, it's not that he's not that he said that. I mean, there's one particular part of his um, speech. This is the work report of the 20th Party Congress. So not the one that he gave last Sunday, but the Sunday before. Right. There was a section where he was talking about um, religious affairs and uh, reaching out to intellectuals outside the party and uh, getting business to be more in line with uh, with uh, with the politics of the party. Now. If you follow Chinese politics, this is the pretty standard way that they talk about uh, political work, right? Or, in other words, uh, united front. And at the end of that litany of things that he was talking about, he said that um, all um, 
all overseas Chinese, uh, there should be a strengthening and improvement of work relating to overseas Chinese to enhance uh, their role in supporting the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. The, uh, the legalistic way that the Communist Party talks about overseas Chinese, the term in Mandarin is uh, Hua Chiao, um, is that it means Chinese nationals overseas. But the common usage of that term, that same term, uh, also means all ethnic Chinese. So there's a uh, Office of Chinese uh, Overseas Chinese Affairs called the Hua right. uh, which is the Overseas Chinese Affairs Office. Now that overseas not ju- not just um, PRC nationals overseas, but ethnic, right. uh, relations between the PRC and uh, with and the uh, ethnic Chinese communities around the world. That office had been absorbed into the United Front uh, Work Department in 2018. So. What I'm gathering from this is that there seems to be an effort to um, work on diaspora nationalism, to mobilize ethnic Chinese communities overseas to, uh, in support of this rejuvenation of the Chinese nation um, view that he has. And of course, uh, sometimes when we talk about Chinese nation, it's a bit confusing because yeah. uh, there, are di- there are different terms of for Chinese. Um, but what does has- CCP mean when they use that term? Do they mean uh, ethnic Chinese elsewhere as well, so, but not... Yeah. Right, so when, so the term that they use uh, when they say Zhonghua, it's actually a very vague term. It's Chinese in a very encompassing manner, mm. right? It's different from saying um, which is PRC citizen. So the right. very expansive view, I think, uh, certainly is suggestive of this um, outreach towards um, ethnic Chinese communities that they actually have already been doing, right? Uh, so this, I suppose... Um, blurring of lines between citizenship, uh, ethnicity, and uh, where loyalty should lie, because one of the narratives that has been put out um, recent, oh, it's a revival of the old narrative, is that if you're ethnically Chinese, you should have some special affinity or loyalty to the PRC state. There's a conflation between the state right, and ethnicity and culture. This is something that Deng Xiaoping had tried to move away from, uh, Zhou Enlai had tried to move away from. Uh, it, it was pretty prominent during the Cultural Revolution, uh, but there was the interregnum, right? So now it seems that she is, you know, moving back towards that older generation. Right. right. And they are actively courting? Or how, how does this look like? Are they infiltrating? Are they courting? Or are they intellectually cajoling? Or what, what is it? Or is it all of the above? So... What we uh, a lot of this is sort of clandestine. Some of it semi-open, so we don't have a we don't have a complete picture. But um, part of it is to uh, is to sort of make use of the sort of affinities that people have for, say, Chinese culture, and say, well, if you if you feel a certain affinity with Chinese culture, guess what? You should also feel an affinity for the PRC because that's the representation of Chinese culture. That is a sort of a, a new a revivalist understanding is not not necessarily always the case. Um, the idea of loyalty uh, because of ethnicity to, to state has so, been to the civilization. Is it is it loyalty to the civilization um, or what? So what is... so it's so it's okay. So it's more toward ethnicity and culture, but there's a conflation between ethnicity and culture and the state, right? And the state mechanism. Right. Uh, this is something that. Uh, it dovetails with the history of uh, Chinese nationalism starting from the late 19th century as different kinds of groups were trying to get loyalties from ethnic Chinese communities overseas to go and fight for them or to go and donate money right. to them. Uh, so the CCP is just reviving that very old sort of mold that they were that, they, that had been present in the past. Uh, so there's a certain resonance, right? right. Uh, so, okay, you, you asked about the mechanism. So part of it is this uh, trying to shape narratives such that people may try to um, uh, present the PRC position, uh, maybe sometimes pressure governments. It's not just uh, in South Asia. You see this around the world. Um, there is uh, there are some efforts to get people to do lobbying on, on their behalf. Uh, most recently, there have been reports of um, uh, helping the PRC to surveil and monitor people who talk about things that the state or the CCP doesn't like, such as um, you know what's going on in uh, Xinjiang, the mass incarceration and re-education, so on and so forth. So Chinese nat- surveillance of Chinese nationals overseas who uh, right, so or, right, 
in the first instance, uh, Chinese nationals overseas. Um, but then uh, in place, we, places like such as Australia, what we see is, uh, and also in, in the US, on campuses in the US, right? It's also policing of the sort of general um, right. discussions that are, so, you know, if you talk about Tibet, right? They will try to disrupt those sorts of discussions. Um, if you try okay. to talk about Taiwan and Hong Kong, there will be an effort to try to disrupt some of those discussions. Right. Do you see this working in Singapore? Has it gotten traction? So it, it manifests in different ways. I think I think what uh, we see in Singapore, certainly I think in, among some circles, um, most evidently sort of slightly older people um, who, who sort of seem very taken by this PRC line and, and seem to want to support it or amplify it. That's, that's one thing. Um, and this comes out through sometimes what certain client associations or business associations say or, or try to convey. This comes out um, most in the most sort of, the most sort of obvious way in which it comes out is uh, through a lot of uh, social media and, and private messaging. Uh, so a lot of the PRC uh, friendly kinds of narratives. Uh, I think one of the most, uh, two of the most uh, obvious examples uh, that I can think of uh, recently. One is uh, with COVID and the vaccines coming out. There was a, there was some talk about how PRC Chinese PRC developed vaccines are better for Asian bodies. Yeah, and yeah. You need to keep away from so-called Western vaccines. That was right. one. Uh, the other was after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There's a lot of talk about. Um, how uh, you know, Singapore shouldn't be imposing sanctions. We can talk about why that's the case later on, but Singapore shouldn't be imposing sanctions, that it's all a, a NATO and US plot. Um, and those dovetailed quite closely with the PRC talking points. And what was also quite evident was this uh, talk about how there were uh, bioweapons labs. So there are, there are bio yeah. facilities, that's different bio labs, right? The, uh, it first started out uh, from the US right wing. And then the Chinese um, state apparatus started... Um, amplifying and uh, rebroadcasting this message. And it was after that that you see these messages come in to the discussion in Singapore, right? right. So there are these sorts of manifestations. But um, one of the things with this sort of approach is that, uh, you know, it's sort of, it's really hard to, it's really hard to trace down because what you see, say, on your um, WhatsApp or your WeChat is things get forwarded many times. You don't know the origin. Right. Okay. So, w would it be fair to say that you and Ambassador Bilahari Kausikan are on the same side on this? I mean, so, so <laughs> I think I think we we agree that there are, there are concerns, but I think uh, some of the solutions that we would think uh, would be put out right. might be a bit different. Um, so, for uh, Ambassador Kausikan, what I've seen him write, uh, he he made in person is that you know it's more about state control but uh, my perspective is that having having observed this in you know different settings I think uh, key is media literacy in the first instance right uh, really widespread grassroots ground up kind of media literacy so people are more educated um, about what to look out for uh, to be also more careful about information they receive all kinds of information that they receive and uh, in the second instance, uh, there has to be more independent uh, fact checking. So and multiple sources, right? So you can you can cross you can corroborate you can cross check uh, against each other. And um, thirdly, I would also say that more transparency would be better. Uh, right. So that allows people to look up for themselves. So uh, to give you an example about transparency, uh, there's been a lot of talk recently about how lots of countries, um, including ASEAN countries, support the One China principle, which is very different from the One China policy. But uh, in reality... Uh, sorry, can you, can you explain the two different? Yeah, I will. Uh, I'm, the I'm, the I'm difference, yeah, okay. I'm, yeah, okay, I'm, sorry. I'm getting there. So, so, so the One China principle is a PRC thing, right? They say Taiwan is a part of China and uh, that China is represented by the PRC. Now, the One China, so that's the that's a PRC thing. Uh, for the One China policy, the One China policies that exist out there, it's basically the terms on which different countries uh, establish formal diplomatic relations with, with the PRC. Um, on one end is the US one where they say, okay, they recognize the PRC government, they maintain robust ties, people-to-people uh, -people ties, unofficial ties with Taiwan. Uh, they do not support, do not support, as different from 
oppose, okay, do not support Taiwan right. uh, independence, and they um, acknowledge the Chinese position. It means to say that they know that Chinese say this, don't support it, they don't oppose it, they, they know it exists, right? Um, so just to take a contrast, the Singapore position is that we actually oppose Taiwan independence, right? But we also oppose unilateral changes to the status quo. Um, uh, so, I mean, the Opposing to unilateral changes, to say it's also part of the U.S. position. But at any rate, you see the two positions. Are yeah. So when you get to the ASEAN statement about the cross-trade stuff, right? They were talking about how the our respective one-China policies, because everyone has a different one-China policy. So um, just so having explained this, to get back to what the PRC is trying to do now, they're trying to you know make create a narrative that everyone agrees with the one China principle, which is actually not the case, right? Uh, so why affect, uh, why why having uh, independent fact-checking would be useful in this case, right? Because it's not the state, the you know, independent parties can say, well, this, this is what's going on, um, and there can be multiple sources, people can look at it. Um, and so to have this sort of more broader, sort of multi-layered approach um, uh, that also you know, if we have these public uh, statements with the PRC. The PRC sites put out some of them, so I think we can as well. To put this out in public, um, create transparency, fact checking, media literacy, this multi layered approach, I think, is much would be much more effective than this sort of whack a mole. Because if you're playing this, so, okay, we're going to whack, you know, uh, ban to a correction order on every false piece of false information that's out there, it's ultimately reactive. You're following what's happening and things would have already gotten out there, right? Um, and you cannot possibly anticipate all the possible permutations. So, yeah, in, in short, right. um, that's why right. I think how we would defer. Yeah. Right, okay. So, for our younger audience, please Google whack a mole, okay, and see how it works. Uh, and what what is the reference to? So so just final small final small point on this. So you agree that this is uh, existential to Singapore. This threat is so, potentially existential. Potentially, because I think um, we are a multi ethnic country. Um, that's the, and we we need to accommodate and live with each other. So to say that there should be uh, more I think a special feeling, special loyalty to any other state. Other than Singapore, um, I think is uh, based on ethnic lines is potentially divisive, and uh, just in case people think that this is far away, it's far distant theoretical thing. Um, I think if you if you think about a possible crisis between between the U.S. and, and China, whether this is Taiwan, Korea, South China Sea, uh, what you would see is that the U.S. may, as they have when when they move. Um, their military assets from uh, Asia to the Middle East and South Asia. They, they're using Singapore as a transit point. So the reverse can happen, right, for a crisis in Asia. And, uh, and what you might see then is the U.S. will try to do this. Uh, the PRC may try to disrupt it by playing up these ethnic divisions, so on and so forth. And right. uh, and certainly you can ex you can see why there's a logic the logic for that. Now that may disrupt the U.S., delay the U.S., um, whatever. That's something that's a U.S.-China thing. But ultimately, if this creates divisions in our society, you and me are the ones, and everyone else listening, right? We, we are the ones right. who have to pick up this. Um, so I think uh, to sort of to use the the sort of vaccine analogy to inoculate ourselves to to protect ourselves um, beforehand before these crises crises appear, I think is quite imperative because if they start when they start appearing and problems start uh, occurring, it'd be too late to play catch up. Right. Okay. Thank you. So there's a question from Steffi. How different is mainland Chinese identity from overseas Chinese identity? Mm. And can the two ever be reconciled or will the former ever be accepted by the latter? So I think the difference is this. I, I don't, I think, you know, when you talk about what is Chinese, this is many, many people have written on it. It's big, it's involves many debates. Um, but there's a sort of cultural sense of what it is. So what are your cultural markets? Just like uh, conversations about what is Tamil, what is Malay. The, these are cultural kinds of debates, right? Uh, and, and they necessarily change over time. The issue with the, with the PRC case um, is because um, with the sort of Chinese state building project from the early 20th century is effort to fuse these cultural elements with the um, with the imperatives of the state. And in the case of the PRC, it's a party state, right? So the whole China rejuvenation of China stuff, it's, it's a, it takes the language of this sort of revivalist, you know, cultural thing, but it really is fused or is sort of the, the cover for the party state's interest, right? So that's where the difference lies. So right. when you talk about reconciliation, I mean, I don't think, 
in, in terms of diversity, um, the cultural bit is not really the problem. It is the question of um, whether you whether this uh, the cultural affinities and the cultural markers also mean that you have to necessarily push for the interests of a party state uh, other than Singapore, right? So that that's right. the real question. Right. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Prof. So Rebecca from uh, NUS Paul Science many years ago. Uh, she says hi. Uh, and uh, I think that that was a good discussion on China, and I I am glad you know during the during the National Day rally, um, then I felt oh my God okay, uh, the the PM is actually talking about uh, singling out the Chinese community right, and all along like I've always felt that as a Muslim, <laughs> like, <laughs> I've always felt like so you know some of the things that uh, some people say about China right no Muslim. Muslim could ever get away saying about about any other uh, entity, right? Any other Muslim, whether it's Malaysia or whatever it is. So I'm really glad that that was uh, uh, that was the stance uh, taken during the National Day rally. So let's move on to something more domestic, right? The hot topic of of the week, uh, the death penalty, right? So what's what's your stand first and foremost on the death penalty? So I am someone who is more skeptical of uh, the death penalty. Um, and I'm skeptical for, I mean, th there's a lot of this talk out there, but essentially my, my view is this. Um, I think to impose a death penalty is a, of course, very heavy and, and grave decision. Uh, and at the back of my mind is the question of whether states, this is not Singapore states, any state, any human institution, whether we can always trust that we make the right decision. Um, because I think humans are ultimately quite fallible. Um, and the we create institutions to try to get around those uh, failings, right? Um, but those institutions are still going to be reflective of some of our limitations. So could we make a wrong decision? Could, could things uh, be done better? Um, I think these are open questions for me that, that need addressing that have not been on the table. So far, the discussion um, has been um, uh, around, okay, well, there's a principled stance against the death penalty, which I understand, uh, that, which comes along a call for uh, more transparency of information. And then the response has been, well, um, the death penalty nece necessarily uh, provides uh, stability and safety and all that, which is, uh, I guess, a claim. But... So now we have two competing claims. As a social scientist, so I say, okay, let's let's test the let's test the two hypotheses against evidence. Uh, but we don't have enough evidence to know for sure at this point, right? So there, there's talk about uh, incarceration and how it is differentiated based on class, based on ethnicity. Um, there's anecdotal evidence. We don't have systematic evidence to to, to see that. Um, you know, uh, in terms of uh, how decisions and evidence and all that. But yes, there's the, there's the court process to, to be sure. Um, but uh, like I said, all institutions uh, are limited by our human um, uh, capacity, right? So I would like to see those things revisited again. I mean, just look at it this way. Um, you know, as, as recently as, say, two or three decades ago, uh, we were many people were very adamant that, oh, look, this whole uh, climate change, global warming stuff, is not really it's not really something that's very serious we need to really emphasize development um, but uh, as we see today right with the uh, uh, you know forest fires with the droughts and all that hey you know maybe we weren't right in the beginning um, I mean it's it's stuff that we may not have been able to know in the past but I think it's always good to have a certain skepticism um, about well may, maybe I could be wrong maybe I need to find out more uh, that that's my general attitude. Right. Okay. So there, there are a few issues here, right? One is <clears throat> the the survey that was released. So the death penalty is widely supported mm -hmm. by Singaporeans, uh, which is separate from its effectiveness. Uh, but we'll mm -hmm. we'll we'll deal with that in a while. So so do you think? Uh, do do you agree with that? You think it's largely supported by Singaporeans? So I I think I think it's accurate in that um, yeah. Singaporeans support it, right? right? But as you point as you pointed out, right? Um, whether we support something uh, and whether it's effective uh, are two different uh, right. empirically different issues. Absolutely, I, I think the whether it's popular. I mean, just politically, it's a it's an easier sell, or it's a. I mean, mm -hmm. to to repeal or to uh, to abolish it will be much harder on the part of the 
and anti-death penalty activists. But it doesn't say anything about the effectiveness, right? Correct. So the effectiveness, I guess, um, it's, it's difficult to prove because we're dealing with counterfactuals in a way, right? So, uh, so yeah. So what kind of evidence would, would we need for this? Um, so, I mean, uh, there was a CNN piece uh, by Heather Chen uh, that, that looked at this and she got a very, uh, 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 by her account, right, a very lengthy re uh, response uh, from MHA. Um, and one of the uh. things that they said was there shouldn't be a uh, conflation, basically uh, paraphrasing, there should be a conflation of the sort of uh, um, amount of drug hauls uh, to, to the effectiveness of death penalty. Well, that's a certain claim, but I would like to know why that's the case. Why shouldn't there be? Because if you think about the economics of it, right? Um, if there's sufficient deterrence, um, there should be a some sort of decrease. But it could be well be the case that if there wasn't the death penalty, you know, the the the, the drug trafficking could be higher, right? So I think there needs to be some way to, to look at this. Um, in, in some respects, there is a little bit of a natural experiment. Uh, it's it's not perfect, but it's one one data point you can look at. Um, I think some years ago there was a moratorium uh, on on the death penalty. So let's let's look at that period and the period before and after. Has serious crime the the rate of serious crime um, uh, is there a significant difference? A statistically significant difference. Uh, if we look at the number of drug crimes, is there a statistically significant difference? If we look at the price of the street price of drugs, right? Because if you know the supply is decreasing, then we expect a rise in, in, in the prices. Is there a statistically significant difference? Um, this is all data that we don't know, right? I'm, right. I'm. This is a lot of this is conjecture, but I think there are ways that we can try in good faith to try to find out. Um, right. To sort of assume from the outset that you know it's an agenda or it's, it's right. uh, some sort of uh, politics. I mean, it's everything is politics as long as we look at it. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Yeah. So. so I mean, I mean, we are we are both political scientists. So the idea that oh, you are being political is a criticism. I mean, it doesn't make sense to us. Yeah, I mean, we are like everything we deal with is political, right? So uh, even so, our choice is political, right? Exactly, exactly. Being being apolitical is a political choice as well, right? So, uh, so on on that, right? So if the data suggests that it is effective, you would be supportive of the death penalty. Sure, I'm I'm someone who's very evidence based. Okay. Um, I, so I think ultimately, I mean, I would I still think that there are questions of, um, you know, whether the the, the institutions are doing the right job. Right. Or, or right. That. Um, but uh, so I I would remain remain a skept I would remain somewhat skeptical there. But I think uh, a lot comes down to the to the evidence. Right. Okay. So your your uh opposition to it or your skepticism towards it it's it's empirical rather than moral right because there are some people who under no circumstances the death penalty should be well in some in some cases it's it's moral as well but the people different people have different moral stances so i've laid out my moral stance which is i think um to take uh, to willfully take a human life is a very big step right uh and um i would as long as there's some possibility of error because we're fallible human beings and the institutions we create are fallible, I would be somewhat doubtful. That's that's my moral stance. People, right. Other people okay. can have a well definitely not, but yeah, people are different. Right. So so can I can I push you a little on this, right? The New Zealand uh moss shooter, right? Um why would life imprisonment first of all, I mean in general, why is life why would life imprisonment be be better than uh than the death penalty? But secondly, in such a case where 40 people, probably about there, were, were killed in, I mean, cold-blooded murders, right? Why would right. the death penalty not be just? Right. So the question is, why are you putting the death penalty in place? That's the deterrence argument we talked about earlier. Right. That's the other argument, which, um, which, which is around and in the background, but people don't articulate openly, which is the idea that uh, there, is, there needs to be punishment. Right. Yeah, that some sort of vengeance argument. Right. Um, so so um, I think many that's a logic that many people I think find very appealing right. uh, and intuitive. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, um, I'm generally not a very angry person. <laughs> oh, really? I, I'm not. <laughs> well, I, I talk a lot, but I'm not angry. Uh, uh, <laughs> 
but uh, so so I would think that uh, I would question uh, whether whether vengeance um, and and the sort of exacting justice by by this sort of uh, punishment is something that we should that should be in in the justice system. Um, so yeah, so I I don't know, but that that's again it's my very idiosyncratic position. Right, right. I I'm trying to understand why would it not. Uh, I mean, can one one person's vengeance is another's justice, right? So if it gives, so I was looking at the reaction of the family members of those who who passed on, uh, those who were shot, right? Some of them were saying, "Oh, let's forgive." Some of them were saying, "Let's punish." Some of them saying, "Oh, death penalty, whatever it is," right? So even amongst the victims, there was, uh, there was some sense, yeah, yeah. So some of them so, do so, want, so, yeah. Right, so so this is this is a highly this is I think a highly personal uh, position. Um, it reminds me actually of a case uh, in Taiwan some years ago where this uh, guy basically stabbed to death a little girl in front of the mother. Right, the mother was nearby; she couldn't react fast enough. Now, the the first reaction of the mother was to say, "You know what? Um, I don't think there should be the death penalty." Lots of people criticized her for that position, um, and. The discussion that came out was okay. So, what does vengeance do? Yeah. Uh, does it bring back the people who passed away? Um, you know, what 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 does it change? So, I think this this is something that is a more deeply personal question. How, how far do you how far do we stretch that argument? Then why punish anybody for any crime if that's the case? Okay. What does so, it do to 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 right. you? Yeah. So for me, I think. Um, I think the baseline for me is rehabilitation, uh, if possible. And rehabilitation doesn't mean you let them go free and, and run around. So maybe in some cases, um, that means uh, okay, if they are if they are uh, incarcerated for life, for instance, um, you know, are there more productive things that can they can do within that context, right? Um, so so I think it's sometimes a bit confusing when people say, well, rehabilitation means that there's no punishment people that are allowed to run free and all that. So I think, I think it, it's not to say that we, nothing is done and people can go, uh, you know, do, do whatever, right? Uh, it's, the, it's what you do in response. And I, I do have to also note that um, many people uh, talk about, you know, harsh, harsh punishment uh, being a cause for low crime. I mean, certainly I think there's some relationship, but um, Another very big relationship is generally economic development, right? Uh, and 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 uh, and uh, uh, less wealth and income inequality. That those are also big drivers. So uh, those those sorts of uh, issues need to be within the conversation as well. Right. Know? Okay. And and you don't think we are having enough of that on the debt? No, so I, I think we I think we can we de- we all deserve to have uh, more conversations. The conversation isn't so much to say that we're going to decide now uh, or we're going to decide tomorrow and forever it's going to be like that. Um, things change. We find out more things. We, we learn more. So these things need to be ongoing uh, and they have to be done in a way that the first reaction is not, oh, the other party is uh, saying this out of bad faith uh, or that yeah. they're ignorant or that they are necessarily trying to disrupt. I mean, hear people out. Uh, maybe you disagree, we, uh, and maybe maybe they are wrong, maybe I'm wrong. But uh, you only really know through this discussion rather than to sort of, um, you know, start by fiat. Okay, you're you're wrong. Right, right. Okay. So, uh, do you think the uh, those against the death penalty they would find more joy if they only talk about the death penalty for drug sentences and not the death penalty in general? I can't. I can't speak for them. Uh, you you would actually have to ask them. I can't I can't speak for them. Like I said, this a lot of these things are. Uh, okay. Wh- what what about you personally? Do you think uh, that uh, society would be more okay with that than with the abolition of death penalty as a whole? So I I think this is one of those areas where we at this point we don't know. We probably need a broader conversation, but conversation about it and things will need to evolve right just like my example with climate change earlier many people thought one thing um you know several decades ago they, they think differently now because we have new evidence uh, we understand things differently and that's just how things are right we we as humans we learn i, I mean talk, i talked about the human fallibility one of the benefit, one of the advantages being is we learn we can change we can improve right yeah yeah definitely definitely um so there is a question by arun do you think that 
<coughs> regardless of objective evidence against the death penalty, the PAP may not be keen on moving its stance uh, on it because of how central it is to its branding as providing order and stability. So that's that's only something that's something that only the PAP can answer. Uh, maybe that's the case. Uh, uh, but you know, I think that what what they you know what needs to be done is just to have a more open discussion. So why is it that they oppose so much? Let's have the evidence out there. Right? If the evidence seems somewhat murky, then why, why is it they hold that position? Um, and you know, we, we will only know when that sort of conversation happens. Okay. So final question on this: Will you be tuning in to Minshan versus Richard Branson? So I'm very confused by that by that whole um, episode, right? So on the one hand, we are told in Singapore that only Singaporeans can participate in Singapore politics. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But and suddenly now, okay, there's this uh, invitation to discuss issues that people in Singapore have been raising for a really long time. Uh, so on, on that level, it, it's somewhat confusing uh, to to me. Uh, and at, at another level, it's confusing because okay, so what? What will a debate like that do? Um, it doesn't bring more evidence to the table. Um, if for some reason Richard Branson wins, what's going to happen? Are we going to change the law? Um, so I, I don't see what it, the debate is. But but I about. thought you said you said you want more discussion and sure. So, isn't so this, I want yeah. more, I want. I, I think I want more discussion, but I think a prerequisite to discussion is to have more evidence, right? Uh, if it's just discussion without evidence, it's just pure opinion. Okay, so... Uh, so I'm empirical, right? Remember? Right. So uh, so when Richard Branson uh, gave his opinions, that's without evidence or...? So, I mean, he's, he's apparently been working on uh, uh, anti-death penalty issues for a long time. Uh, and for some reason, the Nagan case came to his attention. Yeah. So, he, 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 made, uh, he made a statement about it. So, okay, that, I think that's his view. But ultimately, um, it's not just about one case. When we talk about, there needs to be a distinction between, when we talk about things like death penalty, the systemic, the sort of uh, systemic, you know, policy versus particular cases. Um, there are particular cases which I, I think, you know, there can be uh, more problematic than others, others that are more straightforward. Um, and these are, each individual case is important, but we need to also look at it in totality. What kind of pattern comes out? So this is the social scientist, right? I'm interested in the, the patterns and all that. And it's really hard to discern that without more data. What, what data specifically would you need on well, well, like okay. I said earlier, right? We we should be looking at, um, uh, you know, incarceration and class and um, uh, and, and, and ethnicity. Uh, we should be trying to um, understand more what the drivers of the uh, of the drug trade are, because one of the things that seems to be coming out now in discussion is that um, a lot of the people who get arrested and uh, executed are. Um, are drug mills and the and the you know big uh, drug bosses are not um, right basically they're, they're not touchable here so and, the thing is and a proxy for that would be income or something like that right right, right. so but the, but yeah, the yeah. thing is in this in this instance um, one one thing is um, perhaps the issue here is that uh, for drug mills they they are infinitely replaceable you always find poor people who are in uh, some sort of situation and uh, you can manipulate them, right? So if if there's if these people are sort of uh, dispensable um, to to the drug lords, right? So I mean, they, they, these people getting arrested may po possibly be just part of the cost of doing business to them. Just like you take up think of any business as a risk, there's some loss you would accept. Um, so if that is the case, we don't know, right? This is the data, some of the data we need. If that's the case, right? So is it really effective enough? Uh, I don't know. I, I really don't know. I, I would really like to see uh, more uh, information for me to figure out. Right. Okay. Okay. Thank you for that. I, I think some qualitative uh, interviews would would be good also possibly, but I, I'm just thinking about how, how to design uh, this sort of study, right? Um, so... Uh, by the way, I just wanted to say, well, there, there are many people I, yeah, who, who looked at. There are many people who looked at it. So there's also understand, understand. I I understand, but I I am not sure whether it's the sort of 
data that you are asking for in in the context of Singapore, in terms of it being a deterrent. Well, I think I think we need to start somewhere, right? So I I what I mentioned earlier about we have a bit of a natural experiment. That's well, that's one place to start, um, and see where we go from there. Okay. So do you know of anyone who has done that? In Singapore, uh, in the Singapore context, not so much. I mean, there are quite a lot of death penalties in uh, studies yeah, yeah, internationally. Yeah. Uh, Singapore, not so much, in part because of the limitations on data. Okay, okay, Ken. By the way, I just wanted to say I'm happy to to be the moderator for that debate or any debate between Minshan and a local activist as well. I am happy to uh, to be the <laughs> any. But I I agree. I, I okay. So I what's, I think... what's, what's your agenda? <laughs> my agenda is more political discourse. That's my agenda. By the way, I am not. Oh, you're, you're am... being very political now. I see. <laughs> Absolutely, this is a political show, right? By the way, I just put my biases on the table. I'm not against the death penalty. I'm not sure. Uh, so, in principle, uh, whether for for drugs is a different matter. Drug trafficking, right? Because for for the reason you mentioned, uh, for for the, uh, it's usually the lower income. Uh, that are the ones who are affected by it. At least anecdotally, that's what it seems like. But I, my my stance on this is also not hard and fast. I mean, it's it's uh, right. I mean, but okay there was, there, there's also anecdotal evidence that um, people who are well off do uh, recreational drugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we don't we don't enough and we don't know enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. All right. Thank you so much. So civil society, right? So you are a part of civil society, right? As uh, would you say I that? I think or? many people are. I I think people, civil society. This thing, there's a certain label that people seem to think that our civil society is in Singapore, or you you are some you know there's some sort of special. I mean, essentially, if you're not part of the state, um, and you you are sort of active in some way, uh, that is civil society. Your religious groups, your churches, your mosques, your you know that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's basically the space between the state and the individual, right? So, right. And so as long as you say something on something, you are, uh, uh, like, uh, you are, uh, uh, you you can be classified as part of civil society, right? Uh, so and do the you PAP think? No, but is the PAP part of civil society? So if the party is the government, then it cannot be, right? Well, I I think it depends on which part of it, right? So if you yes. they talk about PAP activists and you're right. people, you're right. right. So I think I was just saying this just now uh, in class as well. So I think the the grassroots, uh, the PAP grassroots folks, you can consider them to be part mm. of civil society, right? So Absolutely. so do you see so do you see uh, the the scene changing, and for the, for um, better or for worse? <laughs> so um, for civil society, just like any other side, it's always going to be a contested space about who can say what, who has more voice, who has less voice. It's not always contestation with the state. It's also with different civil society actors. Uh, and uh, that is part and parcel of basically what every society does, and, and Singapore is going uh, through that. Uh, I think right now, it seems that uh, with some of those laws that are in place, whether it's intentional or not, a lot of the feeling is that there are more limitations on on uh, on civil society. Uh, at least that's the effect, right? The effect and intention are, are two different kinds of things. Uh, so uh, that seems to be the case for now. Uh, I suppose things can change, but again, again, it depends on which part of civil society, right? So you see um, the uh, uh, some of the religious movements, religious groups, church groups, for for instance. Um, on on the opposition to the repeal of these certainly being very very active, so there certainly seems to be space for those people. So right. and I mean the thing the thing to remember is that civil society space isn't a homogenous thing. Uh, different groups, because of their own positionality, will have more or less space, right? Right. So uh, I think on LGBT issues, probably there is a lot of space, right, for contestations. But this is not the case for every issue. Um, right, I I think it's also, so. We we just talked about that. I think for them that that, that space is a, little, is a little bit more constrained. Uh, mm. Certainly, um, uh, I I think on uh, on issues of say race, uh, which was something that came up in a big way. That's something that we're still sort of figuring out where we want yeah. to be. Yeah, yeah, 
I think that one is where the the government is also figuring out right this new uh, this new desire uh, to to really talk and discuss uh, to talk about and discuss race openly that uh, I guess has right. always existed in pockets but it's never on to such an extent. And right, and and yeah, I agree, and I think it's it's going to be something that at some point, uh, as a society, we'll have to face because um, we are open, um, and uh, our society, because of immigration, all that, is becoming more pluralistic. There will be more. I mean, it's not just because of immigration; you have different people from different national origins. People will bring different ideas in. There'll be more exchange of different kinds of ideas. Um, so there's a certain uh, increase in uh, diversity that we will have to manage together. But right? how do we disagree in ways that doesn't uh, mean that we have to necessarily silence each other or that you have right. to find some way of punishing the other, that kind of thing. Right. Um, so I, I want to get to that. So without uh, silencing each other, right? So so we'll get to that. But uh, on uh, Academia SG, right? And, you know, when I started grad school, right? Some of my professors, your colleagues, right? <laughs> Some of them, they explicitly say, you know, you are academics, uh, you are not activists, right? Uh, uh, and there was almost uh, some uh, frowning upon uh, activism uh, within academia. Do you think that has changed or it was always uh, there? I think... There's still that sort of... It's part of the legacy of being in Singapore. But honestly... Um, People may disagree. I actually don't see academia as she as being activist, to be honest. Um, really? You don't because, think so? Absolutely not. Because, um, so you have to realize also where I'm coming from. So I, I am, you know, I have colleagues in many different places around the world. Um, and for them to uh, comment or to bring their professional judgment uh, on topics of the day that uh, affect or, or they have, or they, or, or they have, uh, experience or expertise on uh that's just part of normal everyday life right sure uh, but so, that's uh, part of an act uh, activism is part of a uh, normal everyday life right for them um right I, I guess i guess okay so i guess it comes down to how you define activism if mm. you think that activism is you know uh trying to you know put your imprint on stuff and and so far as everybody does it then lots of people are activists. sure I'm, I'm okay with that but right. if you think about um uh, activism in the in the sense of okay, well, there's there's some sort of um, basic uh, ideas or social change you want to push. Um, I don't think academia does. That. I mean, generally we are for academic freedom because that's you know part and parcel of what we do. But um, we are quite open to having a range of different kinds of views. We're quite open to having uh, uh, a pretty robust uh, debate. I mean, one thing that people may say is, hey, how come you, you guys seem to have uh, carry a lot more progressive views than conservative ones? Yeah. Uh, I think there, there are two reasons for that. One is academia generally tends towards yeah. being more progressive. Right. Uh, so there's, there's a certain uh, skewness there. Yeah. Uh, the, the other is that I think in terms of the more conservative, there, there are lots of platforms. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. As, if, as if we don't have enough. Right. right. So, yeah, yeah, I yeah. Mean, so it's part, it's part and part right. of the broader. So, so understand, I completely agree. That was actually going to be my question. right? So one of the uh, criticisms is that, oh, uh, academ academia is uh, too liberal or too progressive or and they are detached from wider society. And I, I think you sort of... Uh, uh, explain that. So the the part on being open to different views, right? So it used, I guess, maybe 10, 15 years ago, it used to be conservatives, uh, especially in the West, right? It used to be conservatives who were the ones who were shutting down debate. But do you do you uh, agree that today it is more of so-called liberals and progressives who are the ones who are shut, shutting down debate, and they will they will use other euphemisms, right? To, uh, to curtail somebody's speech, and they will say things like, "Oh, freedom of speech doesn't mean freedom of consequences." Then, yeah, but what exactly are you saying? You're saying there is no free speech on your part, right? As long as it doesn't agree with you, will you? Well, will you agree with that? <coughs> no, I, I don't, because I think um, freedom of speech is not freedom from um, from criticism, right? So silencing and criticism are two different things. <coughs> I disagree with you. I criticize you. You disagree, criticize me. That's part of the debate. Um, Agreed. Right? Um, 
it's different from saying, okay, I'm going to make sure that you cannot have a platform. I'm going to make sure that you, you cannot speak. So there are some people who do that um, right. on, both, on both ends. But I think um, it's important to distinguish this sort of trying to block, censor, not allow yeah. as, uh, from criticism. Yes, some, some criticism can be quite withering. Uh, right. But but criticism is quite still quite different. No, I agree. I agree. I'm I'm not talking about criticism. I think that's part of free speech, right? Being, uh, I mean, being able to criticize somebody that you disagree with. But I'm talking and also about to get criticized. To get criticized, you're right. So, uh, and you just have to take it, right? If you want to dish it, you have to take it as well, right? right. So, but I, I'm talk, I'm talking about a banning uh, of speakers, for instance, or deep platforming. Uh, so and, I, yeah. So for I, for I things think, you disagree with. Okay, so I think uh, here we have to look at why there's the deplatforming all that. So if it is, so for me, it's not about uninhibited free speech, right? Uh, I think there are consequences where uh, there are speech acts that can uh, incite violence. Uh, there are speech acts that can, um, you know, create um, uh, create situations that are quite dangerous. Right, so, so that's where my, my limit would be, lah, right? Okay, so uh, violence, so, we agree. The, the, the dangerous situation, what, what would that look like? So I suppose um, if... Okay, so this, this comes to some of the discussion on uh, say vulnerable communities. LGBTQ groups are, are one thing, right? So if you say out someone um, for, for being a LGBTQ person, uh, if that means uh, in their <clears throat> their situation, they could get put out of their homes by their family. Some people do that, right? Um, and uh, basically, uh, be in a situation where, as already as vulnerable persons, you know, they, they are left outside to to be more uh, subject to you know whatever uh, sort of uh, dangers that are out there. Uh, that that's what that's what I mean. Okay. So, so yeah. So okay. it doesn't have to be outright violence, right? Okay, so so maybe we we put some some meat to the bones. Okay, so uh, it's getting late. So let's uh, make this more spicy, right? So somebody like uh, Jordan Peterson or Joe Rogan, uh, would you want them to be deplatform or? Okay, so so the question is what is whether you're deplatforming someone as opposed to whether you're targeting certain things that they say, right? So with the with the Joe Rogan stuff, I think some of his anti-vax stuff uh, at the height of COVID was actually quite dangerous and a harm to public health. So to say that, okay, there are these issues that we need to, uh, you know, um, have some management over, it's different from saying, okay, we're completely like deplatforming, right? Um, and then on, on the Jordan Peterson stuff. So so I, I agree with you. So you wouldn't want him to be deplatformed, basically. You want to call think, him out for those positions. Well, call him out. And I think uh, in, in situations like COVID, right, um, if he's going to be uh, talking about explicitly uh, false and dangerous in terms of public health kind of thing, yeah. those, those, there, there has to be very clear labeling or else those segments may have to be taken off, right? Uh, but that's different from completely deplatforming the guy. But but don't you see that uh, slippery slope, right? That's basically like pofmaying, and then you have so, to give the power to somebody, and that right, somebody sure. so, will. Yeah. Right. Except that I think um, I think I would be a bit different from. I mean, like I've said, I I think I said this in public. I'm not opposed to the principle of offer, right? Um, I think that needs to be covered. I'm, I'm opposed to the way that it is being uh, carried out. So um, if uh, I would go with the harm principle in the first instance. Okay, so so if there's harm or potential for harm. Yeah, but uh, and second, and the definition. Second, oh, yeah, yeah, carry on, carry on, yeah. No, no. So, so yes, I, I, I understand where you're coming. <laughs> the definition issue. I anticipated that. So, uh, I think it, it, it has to be. It has to be any decision like that. Uh, has to be out of the hands of any one person and has to be um has to be more independently made, right? Rather than. That, than to be made by uh, a person who is politically vested because that opens up uh, the potential right, for, right. for abuse. So if you have an independent uh, panel that, that does these sorts of things, I would be more comfortable with that. Right. So I, I'm thinking about how far we take this, right? Why, why not CNN or MSNBC for the Iraq war support, for instance, when they were carrying water for the Bush administration? 
they should be as well right and and probably so if I, we were to use this standard john stewart actually would have been the one who was deplatformed uh, for like i said deplatforming and putting uh and and calling uh, removing contents removing contents john stewart was the one who would would okay. have so so i think i think on the on the iraq war thing um here here's the case where and this is why it's important to look at these things in, in detail. The Iraq war case, I think um, the Bush administration lied to many people. Uh, so did the, the Blair government. And many people were taken by it, uh, in, apparently including uh, our own government here. Uh, and so it's, it's one thing when you are doing this intentionally. It's another when you have been misled. But Joe Rogan can also say his... And Joe Rogan had uh, Sanjay Gupta, the CNN chief medical correspondent on. Uh, he has more of these open debates than... Uh, even though it's true, I think he did he did pedal in the anti-vax stuff for sure. But he also had far more people who disagreed with him on that than say CNN, okay. for instance. Yeah. Like like I, like I said, you know, we we have to look at the specific program or even the specific segments of a program rather than to say, okay, well, I'm you know, it's this it, it's this person. I, okay, I said I see. I think the difference is this one. Um, one view is that, okay, dispositionally, someone like a Joe Rogan or a Jordan Peterson is problematic by disposition because of who they are and what they represent. Right. Um, I'm taking more of a behavioral approach, right? So there are, are these behaviors acceptable? Whoever does it, whether it's Walid or whether it's uh, Joe Rogan. Right? Why you bring me into this, yeah. <laughs> well, you started it. So I, I, look at, so I, I look at behavior. Okay, right. So, so th thanks for that. You wanted to say something about Jordan Peterson just now? Oh no no! So it's it's the same it's the same vein as as uh, the Joe so right. It's about so, uh, his behavior, right? Right right. It, so so yours wouldn't be a blanket. Oh, this one, and also because maybe somebody has said one problematic thing before, and then you're gonna deplatform right. uh, forever. Okay, I I think that's that's the the fairest and sen most sensible approach. Uh, uh, I think, uh, and I think that's something that a lot of uh can agree on but do you see it as a problem do you think that the left has gone too far with this so i think there are certain voices on the left that um that are very vocal uh just like there's there are certain voices on the right that are very vocal and essentially what we're seeing is because of the way that media works today um it's amplifying the most sensationalistic element so you see the uh essentially you see the the far right and the far left go at each other and that gets amplified and it creates a i think in my opinion a false impression that this is the debate where there's a lot more stuff going on it's just that the other stuff that's going on is less exciting right 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 okay thank you so much okay prof chong we are almost at the one hour mark so i always end off uh, with these questions or not always but most times right so i'm gonna uh, ask you right to to tell to tell us the audience um what who is your favorite PAP politician and who is your favorite opposition politician other than SM Taman? SM Taman cannot be in the conversation. My favorite PAP and why politician. PAP and opposition other than SM Taman and Pritam? Okay, <laughs> okay, because we want to be reconciliatory, right? <laughs> Okay, uh, so would it be reconciliatory if I said someone like Kosukai or uh, okay, currently, 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 um, it's got to be wallet, lah. <laughs> <laughs> which which is this? I said current polit PAP politician. Yeah lah, wallet lah. <laughs> don't please please don't don't wish the worst for me, please. I'm not gonna be a politician. The worst, you're the worst. Oh. PAP is the best. No politician. <laughs> I mean politician. It's not for me. Not that. Not that politicians are bad. It's not for, politics. Is not for me. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Um. Wow. That's that's a that's a really. <laughs> Um, oh, you're taking way too long, man. To <laughs> yeah, that's right. I I am uh, because you're asking asking about current. So mm, that's that's a good question. Um, okay, so let's. Put, I I I do think that some of uh, Desmond Lee's sort of her heritage and uh, conservation stuff is is useful to have. Hmm. 
Uh, also heard uh, pretty good things about him from uh, people who volunteer with him. But uh, opposition? I, I, I'm cheating. I, I went to NS with him, so I'm cheating. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. So he's your friend. Uh, yeah, he's not my friend, but I knew him a long time ago. <laughs> decades ago. Okay, okay. What about the opposition? Other than Pritam? Other than Pritam? Um, no, actually, Pritam wouldn't have been my top choice anyway. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, he wouldn't be. Um... Why are you not ready for a non-Chinese leader? Or <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, no, no. <laughs> it's, not, it's, it's not that. Um, so, so for me, um, it's it's a it's hard. It's a toss-up. Um, for me, between? it would be a, between Leon Pereira and Hurting Wu. Okay, good choices. Yeah, and I think uh, I think both of them are really underrated. Like really smart and really uh... right, but actually, this is also what I'm saying, right? If you listen to their uh, speeches in Parliament, they make really good points. Yeah, but they're but they're not the sort of exciting. Exactly. I mean, it's, exactly. It's what you look for in politics. Right, are right, you right. For yeah. Entertainment or you? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. They are not the ones with the sound bites or will will get the press for for uh the right or wrong reasons, right? But they really, really good. I've I've interviewed Leon before, and he's really smart. Really smart, and in fact, uh, in JJ's book, uh, Jen Jong's book, uh, he said that Leon Pereira was one of those that was uh, considered to to succeed uh, uh, Lao. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't know like, They have an election, which is a whole different issue. Whether you're smart and whether you can get the votes is a different story. Oh, I, I completely agree. I mean, politics, uh, winning elections has never been about the smartest, right? Uh, in, but I do think that uh, Leon and Ru are. Uh, Underrated. Okay, Professor Chong, thank you so much. It was a pleasure conversing with you. Uh, oh, and hopefully, fine. yeah. So hopefully we can. Once we have more data, then let's uh, come. Uh, you can come back on, and then we can discuss the death penalty. Hopefully, with some activist and somebody from MKH. Well, and, I mean, what, yeah. it's, it's, it's something that I watch, but it's not something I'm an expert. So you really get those people who work on it, uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would be, I would be happy to, yeah. Thank you so much, Prof. Good night. Absolutely. Bye-bye. Good night. Bye-bye.